Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. This podcast contains adult language and situations. If you have a delicate constitution and choose to continue listening, good for you. Hi, I'm Jean Thompson, and I'm going to read you a story from my newest book, a short story collection called Throw Like a Girl, which is a paperback original from Simon & Schuster. It's a collection of 12 stories uh, which deal with lives of girls and women. And the story I'm going to read for you is about memorializing, uh, about people we lose over time and perhaps the selves we lose over time. And it's called Lost. I was 20 years old and about as pretty as I was ever going to be, although I didn't know that yet. I had long, long hair, all the girls did. Mine was nearly down to my waist. It swung across my back like a bell. I had nice legs. There was always some boy I was crazy for, always trouble with some boy. There was never any useful purpose to it. I could never figure out what to do with them besides wanting them to distraction. I was working as a counter girl in a photo studio and going to school part-time. I went to school mostly so I wouldn't have to say I was just a counter girl. But school wasn't really important, and neither was work. They were only the background for the main business of my life, which was to have exciting things happen. That was me back then. A black-haired boy on a motorcycle turned around to stare at me as he rode past. He kept his head swiveled around for most of a block. It was almost comical, like a cartoon where someone smacks into a light post with a lot of exclamation points. He didn't crash, just kept going until he was out of sight. I'd never seen him before. He looked like a pirate with that head of black hair and his black mustache and beard. The way he stared burned through me. You think it has to mean something, a moment like that, and sometimes it does. I met him two or three weeks later. I'd asked around. I knew a few things about him by then. He'd been in my mind the way something not yet real occupies space in your head and takes on different, agreeable shapes. I'd been thinking about him, and the next minute there he was, like magic. I was sitting in the school's commons, the big hangout spot in the basement. There were people who never seemed to do anything else besides sit there. They'd hold court at their favorite tables, little groups of them engaged in idleness and spite and the other minor vices. Outside it was September, still hot, with a polished sky and color in the trees. But down in that basement it was always lurid midnight on some seasonless planet, Unhealthy yellow fluorescent lights turned the air intense and artificial. You have to realize how much people smoked back then. Curtains of smoke wavered and reformed, like the currents of talk and gossip, everybody watching everybody else, eyes like smoke, wandering everywhere. The black-haired boy was tall. He had that tall kind of walk, all long legs. He came across the room to sit down at my table. I forget just how we started talking. He was older than I'd thought, a few years past me. He had blue eyes with a black rim around the iris. I'd never seen eyes like that before, and I haven't since. After a while, he said, "'You should come for a ride on the bike with me.' "'Maybe sometime.' I was pretending not to be that interested. I had a paper cup of something melted down to watery sweetness, and I tipped the cup so the liquid touched my mouth, though I didn't drink. How about now? Come on. 
Around his neck, he wore a bullet with a hole drilled through it, threaded on a rawhide lace. I'd never seen anything like that either. Oh, my heart was a monster. It roared and showed its teeth. Back then, I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it. I still do, I guess, but now I've learned that I can't necessarily have it. I stood up and walked out with him. Everybody watched us go. I knew he had a girlfriend, or an old girlfriend who wasn't quite gone yet. I knew who she was, a blonde with one of those naturally expressionless faces like a cat's. They had some long, messed-up history. I had a boyfriend, sort of, one who came and went, and now here we were, giving people a whole new story. I tucked my hair into my shirt collar so it wouldn't blow around wild. I climbed on the back of the bike like I'd been doing it all my life. That big, loud engine started up beneath us. He drove fast, showing off. I held on to him hard, and even though holding on was one purpose of a ride like this, I wasn't doing it for show. I felt dizzy sick. The realness of what I was doing caught up with me. I had to remind myself that the road flying away beneath my feet wasn't moving at all, and the sky was the sky, and this boy whose face I couldn't see was only going to be a stranger for a little while longer. We rode out past the straggling ends of town where there were little shops for auto parts and furniture repair, a grain elevator, a cemetery looking lonesome. Here and there were islands of trees and maybe a few houses, some half-built subdivision rearing up through the flatness. But mostly it was farm fields and ditches full of zigzag weeds. A rail line ran parallel to the road, banked high above us on its gravel bed. A tractor churned through the fields, knocking over corn stalks and stripping the land down to its hard skin. I leaned into that boy and felt him lean into me. I squeezed my eyes shut against the wind and looked out through my eyelashes. Although it was a fine, bright day that showed everything in its best light, the only thing beautiful out there was us. We turned around and headed back into town as if we'd proved some point about there being nothing we wanted in that direction. The boy, or was he a man, and how did you tell the difference? One more thing that thrilled and scared me. Asked me where I lived, and I told him. Boy or man, they were all so dumb in some ways. I already knew very well where he lived. I had a place of my own on the third floor of what had once been a stately home. A turret grew out of the roof. There was a big, sagging front porch and bits of frail, lovely stained glass above the transoms. The landlord had crammed a lot of cheap plumbing and fixtures into every available corner and chopped it up into rental units. You could lift the linoleum of my kitchen floor and see the light shining in the apartment beneath. There was a bathtub that felt like getting into a coffin. The stove gave off a smell of gas. The rent was $55 a month. It was my first real place. I loved that it was shabby and odd and had walls painted crazy bright colors and was more like a treehouse or a sailing ship than a normal house. I led that boy up my stairs. I wanted what was going to happen so bad I couldn't stand the waiting. In some sense, I wanted it to be already over and done with. I closed the door behind us, and we kissed standing up, and then we were on the bed. We lay side by side, touching each other through and under our clothes. There wasn't time to think about anything. No voice that comes in and reminds you, pay attention, this is your life happening. Next, there was the awkwardness of getting out of our clothes. It's funny how being naked is almost less embarrassing. 
His skin was both white and ruddy, and I tried to see as much of him as I could before he got himself on top and inside me. That's how we began, and that's how we finished, though for a while in between he rolled me up to kneel over him so he could watch me work, and then we started in all over again. I know there's a difference between fucking and love, a good fuck and true love. At least, I know you're meant to think there is. I know all the serious, cautionary things you're supposed to say. I know you can have one without the other. But even so, they're both about wanting and finding, wanting and finding. Then we lay in bed and talked. It was our first normal conversation. He told me he was 24. He'd been in the army. He'd enlisted for the reasons young men usually do, that is, to measure themselves against something big and to get their growing up accomplished. He'd been to the war and come back, one of the lucky ones. This was the ugly, misbegotten war of our time. It was every bit as bad as you've heard. Now he was in school again, trying to be serious about it this time. There was a sunken place along his arm about the length and width of a pencil where he'd been shot. If I wasn't a goner already, that would have done it for me right there. I told him about myself or whatever version of myself I was laying out at the time. It wasn't dishonesty. I just wasn't sure of anything beyond the kind of facts you could put on a driver's license. Was I smart or dumb, pretty or plain, brave or just crazy? The different pieces of me skittered around too much to get a fix on them. It got to where I didn't much like to try, so I said, "'Oh, I guess I'm like everybody else, your average basket case.'" You don't really believe that. I looked at him, propped up against the pillows, the arm with the bullet scar stretched out behind his head and the bullet around his neck. This time yesterday we hadn't yet spoken one word, and here he was with his opinions. But he was right. I didn't think I was like anybody else. When it was time for him to go, we kissed some more and smiled at each other. It was all too nice to mess up with talking. I watched from my window as he walked out to the street and got back on the bike and rode away. I know he knew I was watching. I made the bed and put on some music. I forget what song it was. It didn't much matter. It was one of those times when music pulls the heart out of you and takes it on a sweet ride, and maybe you sing along and think you sound great. A couple of days later, my boyfriend, not that he ever wanted to be called that, came by. I didn't like it when he showed up and hung around waiting for me to guess his various wants and needs and then do something about them. He was a silent, gloomy boy. Over time, we'd stopped having fun and were down to irritable sex. This day wasn't any different. We got smoked up and then we went to bed. It was no big deal anymore. Afterwards, I was in a hurry to dress and start doing something, put dishes away or straighten books because I didn't want to lie next to him in the bed. He got up, too, and said, "'So what's going on?' "'What do you mean?' Although I knew exactly what he meant. "'With that biker guy. "'He's not a biker, not like that. "'Well, what's the deal?' I said, "'I don't know.' And I didn't. I wasn't planning anything out, including what I said next. "'Look, maybe we shouldn't do this anymore.' I just fucked him goodbye, though I hadn't known it at the time. "'Fine. Great.' 
He was pissed off. He said some things about sneaking around behind his back, and I said, no, it had all been pretty much right out in the open. And since when did he act like he cared about what I thought or wanted? Did we ever talk about anything, even the basics, like let's not fuck other people? Hell no, because he didn't want to embarrass himself, didn't want to pretend we were anything important, didn't want to be bound by anything resembling a rule. I'd saved all this up to tell him. I laid it on him, and he didn't have much to say back, and finally he slunk away. Even though I was through with him, I thought he should have tried harder to talk me out of it. Then again, trying harder was the part he could never bring himself to do. This was what I knew about the blonde girlfriend with the face like a bored cat's. They went to high school together, right there in that same town. There was some high school stuff between them. Then when he got out of the army, they'd started up again, moved in together. Her parents were religious, Baptist, I think, and they'd squalled and threatened, and it made for a lot of drama. Then she wanted to go to California, and so they did, and while they were out there, she broke up with him, and this was the part he told me later. He crawled into some kind of black hole, depressed, broke, lonesome. Daisy never got out of bed, drinking, suicide thoughts. I had to admit I had so much crude and awful vanity. I wished it was me, that I could make someone suffer like that. And then I guess the blonde changed her mind about California, about him, and they came back here and broke up and renegotiated and broke up again, but never entirely. It was a situation. He told me the next time I saw him. Full disclosure, truth in screwing. Just so you know, he said, we were in bed again and we'd torn the place up, literally. One of my old bed sheets had given out in the middle of us carrying on and we'd put our feet through it and torn a big hole. We thought that was so funny. We laughed and howled and kept at it until the sheet was only ragged ribbons. But now we had to quit being funny. I said, what am I supposed to know exactly? And what's she supposed to know? I didn't tell her about... No, I guess he wouldn't. He said, I don't know what I want anymore. I used to think I did. You just mean you want more than one thing. He looked unhappy. I knew this much about him by then, that he had a store of tender feelings, that he didn't like to think of himself as dishonorable. I said, all right, now I know. Cheer up. You look all tragic. I don't want to do this to you. I made a joke of that, how I was pretty sure he wanted to do it to me, but I knew what he meant. We were already stuck in some trouble, like a fly in the last gluey inch of a honey jar. I decided I didn't want to make a scene. Scenes were not acceptable. None of us back then liked to think of ourselves as hung up on jealousy and possessiveness, which were equated with materialism and false values and all things bad about the old order. It was an attitude my sad sack, now ex-boyfriend, had taken to extremes. The ideal was to be free and honest and open and careless. It worked about as well as you'd expect. I reached for the bed sheet and tore a big strip off the end and made another joke about how he was going to have to buy me a new one, and all the while another voice in me said, Murder, murder, murder. He said, It's not like her and me get along that great. We fight a lot. About what? Stupid stuff. Like what? I could tell he didn't want to talk about it, but I wasn't going to let him off the hook. If I was going to have the blonde crammed down my throat, I wanted the goods on her. 
like spending money or being on time or being late or who didn't clean up their mess. Oh, wife stuff. I don't have a wife. You might as well. He was getting mad. I didn't care. Mad was what I wanted right then. I said, yeah, I guess that's what happens when you're together a long time. You turn into ma and pa. Not that it's such a bad thing. Cut it out. The wife now. I bet when you talk about sheets, it's a conversation about fabric softener. Not funny. So, life between the sheets. Tell me about the ups and downs, the ins and outs. Ins and outs, that's pretty funny, isn't it? Shut up. Make me. He was on me that quick. He pinned me so hard I had trouble drawing breath. Wife, I got out in a choked kind of voice just to taunt him, and he wrestled me down, and Lord, he was strong. I might have been created for the express purpose of being a weak thing he could use his strength against. He eased up and let me breathe again. He wasn't trying to hurt me, but I was trying to hurt him any way I could, and I'd already used up words, so I was left with punishing him with how good I can make it, how hard and fast he'd have to want me. And when we were done, it was as if we'd been through some ordeal that had ended happily, rescued at sea after days adrift, or plucked out of an avalanche. My God, we said and kept saying, and there was a lot of kissing, and we both got a little weepy-eyed. When he had to go, he told me not to get up, that he wanted to keep looking at me just as I was. And so I stayed right like that, naked in the middle of the ruined sheets. This was who I was turning into, the girl you came to when you wanted to wreck things. I know for a fact that I went to school, went to work, wrote papers, talked with friends, did normal life things, but all I can really remember of that year is the time we spent in bed. The weather turned cold. We had more clothes to climb out of now, and I piled quilts on the bed. I said, I'm never really warm unless you're right here with me. The sky was gray and bulging, and a steady cold rain rattled the panes of glass above our heads. I made us tea with hot milk, and it was nice being there together and not worrying about anything outside. He said that school was going all right for him. He wasn't quite as dumb as everybody said, and I told him who was everybody. What did they know? I touched the scar on his arm. The tip of my finger slid into the groove of puckered flesh. Did it hurt? Not right away. That's shock. You have to figure out what happened first. Then it hurts like sin. Tell me. He started talking in the careful way of a story you've told before, following the trail of words you've laid. We were on base. People don't get shot on base. There's a secure perimeter and razor wire and sandbags and all the ammo in the world. You get so you think nothing bad's allowed to happen. You forget the whole point of the damn war is anything can happen. One second I'm standing there drinking coffee, the next I'm in the dirt timber, and everybody's shouting and kneeling over me, and I still don't get it, and I turn my head. I watched his head on the pillow inclined towards the arm with the scar. His blue-black eyes had the memory in them. I thought if I watched his eyes long enough, I might get inside the memory, too. And here's this piece of my arm not there, and guys calling for the medic. It was some kind of weird good luck the bullet knocked me down. The bastard was aiming for me. If he had another shot, he might have finished me off. No, we never caught him. You never saw who was shooting at you. Sometimes you'd see guys get hit, and you could tell they didn't know they were dead yet. It all happened that fast. We both lay quiet for a while, thinking how strange life was, the bullet that hit him and the bullet that missed, 
all so he could end up a world away in my bed on a rainy afternoon. I put my head against his chest and listened to his heart speak its one word over and over again, alive, alive, alive. I said, I bet you were a good soldier. Now how would you know that? I guess I can just tell things about you. He was quiet for a moment, and I knew I was right. Whatever he set out to do, he wanted to be purely good at it. In one sense, he was a soldier all his life. He said it was a really stupid way to get shot. I don't think there's any smart way. Neither of us was a big talker, but there were times we could say things and have them land in the right place. We didn't do any more talking about the blonde girl. Sometimes he was with me and sometimes her. It wasn't much of a secret anymore. On occasions, I'd see them together down in the commons or on the street. I hated that girl, but even then I knew there was something formal and technical about certain kinds of hating. Sometimes I wonder how her life turned out, if she kept finding people to love her. That's how it is for some girls. They never set foot beyond a certain boundary, an idea of themselves as precious commodities, and everything follows from that. It was past Christmas, but still winter, a time of year that has no excuses for itself. The weather of the world matched the weather down in the commons, and I spent a lot of days in that stale, used-up air, studying or not studying. Everyone I knew was holed up in there, smoking and waiting for life to land on them, Come spring, a lot of them were going to graduate in spite of themselves. The boys were worried about the draft. Nobody had any such thing as a job offer or any intentions of finding a real grown-up job. My friends were English majors, history majors, poets. They prided themselves on not being useful. They had plans to go to Europe or California or maybe Japan. Or they were going to buy farmland and live in stoned harmony with nature or do something beautiful and artistic and not care about money. But I think we knew without wanting to admit it that a lot of things were coming to an end, including that kind of aimlessness. If I walked into the commons and the black-haired boy was already sitting there with the other girl, I ignored them and took a seat on the opposite side of the room. They'd pretend not to notice me. It never worked in reverse, me with him and the blonde girl walking in to encounter us. I don't remember ever seeing that girl out anywhere on her own, as if she was a doll that had to be taken down from a shelf. But on this particular day, I was feeling mean and resentful from another session of work where the boss gave me a hard time just because he could, and school where I was made to feel unimportant in other ways. I was tired of chapped skin and of the lumpy winter coat I'd worn every day for weeks. It was beginning to look like some unclean animal, and of picking my way across icy, crudded sidewalks to get to places I didn't really want to go anyway. I walked into the commons, and there they were, him reading a newspaper with his long legs stretched out, her tearing crumbs off a roll, making a mess of her food until it wasn't anything you'd want to eat. It wasn't any different from any other time I'd seen them together, but it was one more time. And on top of everything, or maybe it was at the bottom, I guess I was mad at him, the way you could build a mad out of all your unworthy grievances. A friend of mine was sitting at the far end of the same long table, and my friend waved and said, Hey, grab a chair, and so I did. I didn't say hello or even looked at them. I launched into an unnaturally natural, vivacious conversation with my friend. Right away, the blonde girl got up and walked over to the women's bathroom. 
She stayed in there a long, long time. I know that mercy and charity and forgiveness and all those soft virtues have values, and the world is a better place for them. But there's nothing like the rush of pure righteous triumph you get when a rival won't stand their ground. By the time she finally came back and sat on the far end of the table on my side, there were a couple of people who'd filled in the space between us. The black-haired boy asked her if she was all right, and she said yes in a whiny little voice, and I hated him for asking it like he cared, and I hated myself for going along with this messed-up deal in the first place. It was the end of playing fair, or maybe there had never been any fairness in it. I wanted to do something horrible. I looked over the heads of the people between me and that other girl. I said... You know who I am, right? She didn't turn my way. She still had that plate of picked-apart food before her, and she stared into it like it was a face staring back. I said, This is so stupid, really. I quit. He's all yours. There was enough noise at the table, three or four different conversations going, that no one else had paid attention to me at first. Then they got a whiff of what was happening, and they all quieted down. Now I had to keep going. You can tie him to the front porch so he doesn't stray. Whatever. She got out of there fast, scooped up her coat, and flew. I waited for him to go tearing after her so they could have one more of those big reconciliations they were so good at. I didn't care what happened anymore. Everybody was watching us. Waves of watching spread out from our table across the room. I guess I'd had to say things in front of other people so it would be for real. He took his time getting up, and he didn't say anything, which I guess disappointed the crowd, but didn't surprise me, none of this having much to do with words in the first place. But he gave me a look, and the look said, Is this how you want it? And my eyes said, Yes, no, yes, and he walked out, but through another door, and I left a little while later, all three of us going off in different directions. I wish I could say that was the end of it. The big scene, the clean or jagged break, the gradual return of clear-headedness and self-respect, the lurking regrets and shames, and then life moving on to the next absorbing challenge. It wasn't that way. The very next day I went to his place where I'd only been once before, the fear being that the blonde girl might stop by, and that's why I went there now, to kick all that caution in the face. I told him if it was finished, he had to tell me right now, right here, and I'd meant everything I'd said, and nothing could be the same. He only had one room, a little space for a bed and all the rest, and he paced it from one end to the other, and said I wanted him to say things he didn't mean, and I said, no, feel free. Tell me she was prettier, sweeter, whatever, more than me. I could handle that." He said it wasn't like that, but he owed her something after all those years. He had to be loyal, and I had myself a laugh over his idea of loyal. It was one of those fights that are about everything all at once, with no rules or boundaries, and you end up fucking just to put an end to argument. And in spite of everything he might have promised or I might have threatened, eventually we went right back to the way things had been. Sometimes I could feel almost philosophical. It was nobody's fault that there were two of us and only one of him. Weren't there places in the world, times in history, where this was how people arranged things and everyone was happy about it? Or was it only the way men wanted it and the women were bullied into going along? I guess you'd have to be a cow not to care, some big, calm, slow-moving animal who didn't much notice what was going on back there. Sometimes when we were in bed, I'd try to lift myself out of my body and be that animal, reduce everything to matters of sweating and friction, but it was nothing you could pretend your way out of.
The weather turned warm in a hurry that year, and in my memory it's as if we went from ice storms one week to bees and white clouds and grass the next. I know that's not true, but I know why I see it that way, because the end was coming up fast, even as it seemed like a beginning. He and the blonde girl had one more enormous, pointless fight and finally wore each other out. It seemed I'd won by default, by process of elimination, but I was too happy and greedy to care. If there's ever been a time in your life when everything was perfect, you know you can't really do it justice, can't get inside it. It's like looking at someone else's vacation pictures. But I will say I stood in front of a grove of flowering trees, although I don't remember where, and the trees were an explosion of pink and white blossom, although I never knew what they were called. And it's true my mind was probably bent around some drug at the time, but I thought if I died right then and there, it would be all right. And that would be a good place to end a story or a life, except nothing ends that pretty. When someone says, we have to talk, it's nothing you want to hear. He told me the blonde girl was pregnant. I asked, was she sure, and was he sure, meaning sure it was his. He said yes, and yes. He wouldn't sit down as if standing was some kind of penance, and he looked sick and shaken, but I had no sympathy for him. How could you let this happen? Nobody let it. It just did. She did it on purpose. You don't know that. I know I'd never do this to you, make you be with me because of a baby. Because I knew he was going to do the upright thing, take her on as an obligation if nothing else, I was crying by then. You should have met me first. He didn't speak. There was no point in wishing or unwishing things, but I said, it should be me you can't leave. Yes, it should be you. He walked back down my stairs, and I covered my ears so I wouldn't have to hear the exact moment when he wasn't there anymore. I had to get to work only a little while later, and so I wrung out a cold washcloth for my eyes and put on my counter-girl clothes and walked downtown. When I opened the door, the owner put on his annoyed face, ready to start in on me. The owner was a middle-aged guy who limped from childhood polio. He was short and rat-nosed and bald except for a slick of rat-colored hair, and when he was angry about something, which was most of the time, his upper lip would draw back and twitch in a way that could scare you. He said, let's check that attitude at the door. What attitude? None of your back talk, missy. How about you quit the princess act and get to work now? Don't call me missy. He stopped shuffling his way towards the back room and turned around. What's that? Don't call me princess either. He limped over to me and his lip was doing that twitching thing again and he wasn't any taller than me so our eyes were dead level and because he was ugly and unlovable and in pain all the things I felt myself to be I said this is a crap job to begin with and your nasty mouth's the worst part. He was shaking so hard I expected to see parts of him spin off, his smeared glasses maybe, or his percolating forehead. I wanted him to hit me so I could hit him back, but he just told me to get out, and I did, and there I was back on the sidewalk, not two minutes since I'd gone in, and a job was one more thing I didn't have anymore. School was done for the term, and although I could have found somewhere else to work, there didn't seem to be much reason to do so. My rent was month to month. There was nobody to tell me not to leave town. I decided I would move back home to my parents' house, take whatever dose of disapproval they'd dish out. 
As long as I was in school, they'd been able to tell themselves I still had potential and find another crap job that might pay a little better. Out of my group of friends, I was probably the first to give up on all that vague, splendid ambition. I was leaving town in two weeks, and then it was one, and then it was down to days. I'd already told him I was moving, and I watched him say that maybe it was for the best, and I agreed, and that was how we left it. But the, but the night before I left town, I called and begged him to come see me one more time, and if there's a more abject word than beg, that's what I did. Please, I said, and he said he wanted to as bad as ever, but it couldn't happen. The baby changed everything, and please, I kept saying, and finally we knew who we were, me who put nothing above the wanting, and him and his soldier's honor. I used to have an album with a picture of him in it, but I lost it somewhere. It was a picture I took of him standing next to the motorcycle in his beat-up boots and jeans. His arms were crossed and his chin was up in a tough guy stare and he wasn't smiling. But the second after I snapped the shutter, he did, and that's what I remember now. The smile, not the picture. The blonde girl never did have the baby. It was another thing lost, though I didn't ever learn the whole story. Time went on, and he married someone else and then unmarried them, just as I married and unmarried. He had his kids, and I had mine. He was married again when he died, yes, died, in one of those stupid freak accidents that you think nobody ever dies from, like a giant wave sweeping you off a cliff or getting struck by lightning. He'd moved to another state, so the news didn't reach me right away, and because there was the wife, I couldn't be part of any official mourning. He went fast. His heart stopped speaking, and I imagine he didn't even know he was dead. Over the years, I'd heard from him now and then, a card or a letter. It was nice that he did that, kept in touch in a friendly way. Once he wrote and told me he was going to be visiting the city where I lived. But he had one of the wives in tow, and she was funny about old girlfriends, who could blame her, and he didn't know if he could get away. There was a night when the phone rang late. I was already in bed, and I listened, but nobody spoke into the machine, and I didn't get up to answer. He told me later that was him. Now, if a phone rings late at night when the house is dark, he is who I think of, although I know the dead don't make calls, at least not in that way. I'm older now than he was when he died. Things happen to the body that are God's practical joke, and I don't much like this face I've got now. My life turned out pretty ordinary. Not great, not awful. I'm not complaining. Nobody looking at me now would guess there had ever been anything wild in me, anything as desperate as that loving. I know we're meant to grow from experience like a tree, send out roots and branches of wisdom and patience and understanding. But my best and truest self was a tree in blossom. All those years since, there's a sense in which they count for less, even as they take up space, crowd out the past. That quick, there goes your life like a black-haired boy on a motorcycle, looking back until he's out of sight. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.